0: We'll be in John chapter 12 today, so if you have your Bibles, uh, please pull those out, or uh, scripture will be on the screen. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has ra- had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table." Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. You guys can go ahead and be seated. You know, one of the enemy's chief goals in life has always been to question the goodness of God. To get us to believe or to buy into the idea that freedom in life is found apart from God, not with him. If you remember, if you've been In church for a while or following Jesus for a while, maybe you've read Genesis chapter 3. And and the serpent goes to Eve in the garden and says, did God really say that? It's the lie behind all other lies. And there's a deeper root of this widespread cynicism that we can say, We're cynical because a life is hard or because the odds are against us, but the real reason for our cynicism is further beyond the surface. And it comes out of how we answer the question what do I think God is like? This question goes deeper than do we believe in God or not? How do we, how do you respond to the invitation that we just read to rest at the feet of Jesus? Because the truth is... A lot of us, we start out following Jesus, running out of the gates. Have You you guys know what I'm talking about? Running out of the gates, stronger than as ever. I remember when I came to the knowledge of Christ as a young man or a young boy, I was so excited, pumped up, running out of the gates. I remember reading the Bible so much that my parents had to force me out of my room from the Bible. I mean, come on. To go actually play with my friends because I just wanted to consume what God had put in the pages of Scripture. And sometimes we start out that way and we go running. But we experience then, as we saw on that video, difficulties or situations where God could have intervened, but he didn't. Circumstances that remain against you while you read verses that say God is for you and not Against you. I remember when I was 16 years old, around this time that I just described to you, about a year or two later, I went into severe depression, close to suicidal depression, the darkest moments of my life, because of a physical illness. And right around that time, a year before all of this started, I believe God had called me to go preach and pastor. His church, and I said yes to that. And then a year later, all of this sets in, and I experienced for the next three and a half years the darkest moments of my life. And I remember over and over again saying, God, but I said yes to your plan, and now this. Can you guys relate to that? And over time, moments like these can create cynicism if we're not careful that then leads to entitlement or self-preservation, a sense that I got to preserve self, I got to protect myself because God didn't come through, God didn't answer the way I was hoping he would, and so I got to Buckle up and and try to do this myself. Or maybe for you, you start out strong, but as soon as God doesn't come through the way you thought he should have, your attention is placed not on Jesus but other gods, more attractive in the moment, something that satisfies a little bit faster than God's answers or gives a quicker answer. And so the question for us today is, how do we follow Jesus when we don't understand his plan, Because what we're going to see today are two different responses that I think rise out to questions for you and for me to answer as followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, these questions are perfect for you as well. So two questions that I want to ask today. When God doesn't make it clear, how do I still choose him? And how, number two, how do I keep my eyes on Jesus and reject cynicism and self-preservation? Because in our passage today, what we'll see is the contrast between a woman, Mary, who sits at the feet of Jesus and a man named Judas who uses religion to cover up his real motivations. We're going to see the contrast between religious self-effort or entitlement and choosing to depend on Christ. And so the big idea is for today, here's my prayers as we're, you know, as I'm preparing. Here's what I'm hoping we leave with today is that God wants surrender as the choice of your heart. God wants surrender as the choice of your heart. Of your heart. So let me catch you up here. We've been in John for a while and it's been an amazing series. But if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after Mary and Martha asked him to come and to heal their brother. Jesus, in the most unhurried way, waits a couple days, but then a few days later, comes and sees his friend. And long story short, Jesus comes to Lazarus after four days being dead. And the resurrection and the life raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you read then, at the end of chapter 11, the religious leaders hearing about what Jesus had done for Lazarus had already been plotting Jesus' death because after this amazing miracle that Jesus had, had done, and it had done uh, all the miracles he had been doing, there had been more people coming to Jesus and following him and believing in him. And so the religious leaders were jealous because they saw so many people and crowds going towards him. And so they began to plot Jesus's death. And what we'll see later on in the chapters, they even wanted to kill Lazarus so that the proof was gone, Right? And it's happening. We're at the point in the story of the the Jesus story where the clouds are building up and the sky is getting darker and darker and we're getting closer and closer to the cross. But before he goes and and, and experiences the week towards the cross, he attends a party. And in our scripture today, Jesus is at this party six days before Passover. And in Bethany, this entire chapter is a mirror to the Passover. And as I was studying this week, what I love about it is is, is, is what I discovered is is it gives us two ways to respond to Jesus. And that's what I want to look at today as we look at those questions we asked earlier So it says this in in verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, (coughs) excuse me, from Jesus who had raised, or Jesus had raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover. This is not this not only explains why Jesus is in Bethany because he's headed towards Jerusalem which is a, it's it's like a mile away from each other and in Bethany he's probably at the house the very house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha but it also indicates that this monumentum, that, that the momentum of this story is gaining steam the clock is ticking he's 6 days away from the cross, something big is going to happen any time now. And we know that on that coming Sunday, the triumphal entry where Jesus is welcomed on a donkey and, and, and trees are being waved. And it's this incredible scene of the king of the world in the most humble way entering into Jerusalem. And so at this party, if you can imagine, Jesus' death is hanging over him. But from this point on, the shadow of the cross, and through this story, what we'll see is it becomes clearer and clearer. And so he goes on in verse verse 2, he says, So they had dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. It's the original lazy boy, right? So he's chilling. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her hair with his or his feet with her hair and the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. So Jesus is in town. They're throwing this party. If you can imagine, they're probably celebrating the miracle that Jesus did for Lazarus. Um, And any time you're in the presence of Jesus, what do you do? I mean, you celebrate, right? You throw a party, and this is what they're doing. Martha, side note, if you've noticed, Back a few chapters earlier, Jesus rebukes Martha for working and missing the point of sitting at the feet of Jesus. But she does, he doesn't do this here. Um, and if, so if you notice, she's not being rebuked. So her heart probably has changed. And she's serving with joy. So these two women are doing what, what they love to do, not for recognition, but to serve the King. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So they're, they're relaxing together. And then we see Mary probably still fresh on her mind. That conversation between Jesus and her, and her sister, Martha, when, uh, in Luke 10. When he, if, if, if you remember, he said, Martha, Martha, you're so anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away. From her. So Mary then takes a pound of this expensive ointment. This is not your everyday DKNY from Macy's, okay? This is some amazing, expensive ointment perfume with pure nard, and she pours all of it on the feet of Jesus. It says that it it was an expensive perfume. Probably around 300 denarii, which if you translate, most commentators say it was probably somewhere along the lines of $30,000 today. It's crazy. And she pours the whole thing on him. And then it says Mary lets her hair down and used it to wipe his feet. See, in that culture, what she had done is something that is not culturally accepted. She's breaking, again, cultural boundaries because to put your hair down is only meant for your husband. And so she not only lets her hair down, but she wipes the feet of Jesus with it. The other gospels focus on other parts of Jesus, but it's interesting because John focuses on Jesus' feet. And what I think he's doing here for you and for me as the reader is he wants to bring home the surrender of Mary's selfless devotion, her risk-taking love, her costly giving love that Mary displays for Jesus at this party. And it also says in verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Putting on display this incredible love that Mary shows, but suggests that the fragrance, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but suggests that the fragrance is meant to extend, to go beyond this very event to the cross. And this is Mary's way of showing her affection for God, but she also is anointing him in this moment. Look at verse seven of chapter 12. He says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We'll open this up a little bit more later, but Judas is complaining that she's wasting money. And Jesus says, this is for the day of my burial. Remember in verse one, John mentions the Passover and now Jesus points everyone to the cross. And what John is doing is he's, pointing, is he's pointing us to the reality that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is about to be killed as the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, to deliver his people. And then in verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because it says he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you. You do not always have me. Verse 5 is the only occasion when John records Judas actually saying something rather than what he did. And Judas is in charge of the finances as, di- as one of his disciples. It's the money bag. And Judas says, when he says it's not because of some concern for social justice, or he had someone in mind, but because he wants to take the money for himself. He says he was a thief. But as I was reading this this week, I was thinking, you know, we have to see that Judas started out following Jesus. Jesus. We couldn't even say that he had, at first good intentions. But what we see in this passage is there's a difference between our good intentions and real transformation. If we only have good intentions, those will eventually be beat out by another God, a louder voice, a more attractive way of life. And Jesus says, listen, the poor will always be around. In other words, there are always opportunities to give, but I won't always be here in the flesh. And Judas's religious cover-up for his own personal gain places blinders on him to see the whole point of Mary's actions. That the Savior has come. And this is a contrast between law and grace, legalism and surrender, virtue signaling versus authenticity. And there's, these are two ways of viewing or interacting with Jesus. You know, the truth is that legalism is kind of hard to spot sometimes because the rules seem so good. Are there any rule keepers in the house today? Anyone? I'm a related to a few, uh, to be quite honest. And I love them so much. But, you know, my sort of semi, if, if, if you are familiar with Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 3 with a wing 4. So that wing 4 is kind of that free spirit in me that kind of, you know, likes to kind of push it a little bit more. But my fam- there's some members of my family who are good at rules. But it feels good. It, it does, doesn't it? But religion or legalism... Typically what happens is it twists a good thing and uses it to hide behind something. Legalism can be defined as relying on our own obedience to gain acceptance from God. And today what we don't, we don't use this word legalism. We don't go up to our friends and be like, bro, you're, you're being super legalistic right now. Unless you've been in the church for a while, there's some of that that, that does go on. But I think maybe what's a better translation for you and me is the word entitlement. Colossians 2.16, Paul says this. I love this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge. He's talking about legalism here. And he's uh, writing to the church in Colossae. And he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink with a regard to religious festivals, a new moon, or a celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, what, in other words, these things that the religious leaders are telling you to follow are just a shadow of what is to come. And that is Christ. It is f- its fullness is found in Christ. So he's not saying it's bad to, you know, read your Bible morning and night. Those are amazing things. Or go serve the poor. Those are incredible things. But all of those things are a shadow and they find their, their fullness in the fullness of Christ that desire to honor God and to follow the rules and to follow God's ways all of those are amazing and they're God honoring but they don't get you to Christ they're just a shadow to him there's two things about religion and legalism religion points things out in others while being guilty of the same faults and legalism is only concerned about what you can get from Jesus. And a lot of times I think we o- we only think the enemy can sideline our faith with those big sins if you know what I'm talking about. With porn, with addiction, with an affair, but especially in this life of, of, of someone who is following Jesus, he's going to take something that is good and try to make it the enemy. Try to make it an ultimate thing. Jesus, I want to give to the poor, he said to Mary about Mary's actions. But Jesus says you're using that to hide behind the fact that you actually want it for yourself, Judas. See, in our modern world, I think this is called virtue signaling. This is what we do to demonstrate how good of a person we are. A lot of times this comes out on the internet, on social media, on the news. So we post about every cause or every important cultural moment. But the problem with all of this, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it isn't, but the problem with this is it has become the modern form of our own self-justification or legalism. We need to justify ourselves to show that we are in the rights. And in a culture that rejects absolutes and morality, virtue signaling is a form of moral indignation. So if you condemn abortion, the results of virtue signaling is it says you must be condemned as well. You need to approve of my opinion or be punished. It's self-justification. If you don't do what I want you to do, you must be punished. And this is what Judas is essentially doing to Mary. She didn't obey the guidelines for his person that he wanted for his personal gain. He didn't like Jesus' reaction to her. So he attempts to justify his actions by saying, Mary needs to give to the poor more social justice, Jesus. More. This is the religion of the day. Religion will boost your ego and deceive you into believing that what you're doing, although you're lying and hiding behind something, is okay because at least you're checking off the box of something that is good. Is social justice good? Absolutely. Is God going to bring justice to this world? Absolutely. But this is something we've been doing from the beginning of time is hiding behind the good cause of the moment or hiding behind something that is good. Adam and Eve see God's law. They don't don't eat the tree, but rather than seeing his presence in the cool of the day and the, the rest of this paradise that they're living in, the serpent comes and he twists God's word and says, what if? What if you could get more? And they are distracted by what God God is keeping from them. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about legalism. He says this: that legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Eve sees God's law, but she has lost sight of the true God Himself. Abstracting his law from his loving and generous person, she has deceived into hearing law only as a negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of her, a heavenly father. See, the root of legalism and religion has nothing to do with how do we view the law but it's dis- it's a distorted view of God as the giver of life truth has been exchanged for a lie and legalism or entitlement or self-preservation or self-justification will only die when we see the truth about God it's not about just simple intellect a few weeks ago, I said how we think determines how we live. This, is, this begins at the heart and affections level, how we feel about God, what we think about God. We do not relate to God in an affection and emotion-free context. But as a result, persons mind all dispositions, motivations, and affections. Judas sees an opportunity for gain. And it comes to the point where now maybe you're asking, you might be saying, well, I would, I would never do that. I know the story. But we actually do it all the time. We see Jesus as a means to an end. I mean, come on, we live in the Bay Area. I mean, the biggest section in the Barnes and Noble today, what is it? Self-help, right? Self-motivation. How many of us come to church because we need help with our marriage or our finances or our personal life or our career, and then something changes in our lives and we drop off? We need the benefits of the gospel without the gospel. See, what draws us to self-preservation or legalism is not about pleasing God, but it's fear. Maybe we will want to please him, but the fear of what if God doesn't come through? What if he doesn't turn my circumstances the way that I want them? And what happens is fear builds up. And when fear builds up, what, it, what, it, uh, what happens is actions are, it turns into self-preservation. Fear in action is self-preservation. So Judas didn't start out this way. He chose to follow Jesus, probably at one point mobilized by his passion to follow Jesus, to learn more. But Jesus rebukes him in verse 7 of Judas, seems to be his last invitation from Jesus to true discipleship. We know the rest of the story that it goes on and he actually does sell Jesus out. And that's what leads him to the cross Jesus had become a resource for Judas. I just wonder how many of us are standing in front of the Savior and we're still more attracted to personal gain or our own agenda or another God. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says again. He says, It is this, legalism, talking about legalism, is a failure to see the generosity of God and his wise and loving plans for our lives that lies the roots of legalism and drives it. So how do we gain a heart like Mary? How do we gain a heart that says, I'm gonna sit at the feet of Jesus. I'm gonna give all that I have how do I have costly giving? How do I have a risk taking kind of love? I think what happens, what we need to do first is we need to identify the lies that we've exchanged for the truth and I just want to quickly go over this with you and here's what this looks like and this, this is kind of my uh, comparison as I'm reading this story and what legalism is ruled by is personal gain, self-greed, self-preservation and of course you see over surrender is costly giving, self-denial, a generosity, a selfless risk-taking, nothing to prove, it's a gift, it's transformation. And so what I think we need to see is, or what we need to look at, is what lie have we exchanged for the truth? If you're like me, I have to over and over again remind myself that it's not about what do I achieve, how I present myself, what my resume says, but salvation is a gift. And as I'm reading this, I'm noticing a few things about Mary's response to Jesus. And number one, she said, I, I think this is kind of what I, or what I took out is, turning your will toward God begins with turning your attention. Turning your will towards God begins with turning your attention. Attention. The reality is Judas probably started following Jesus, but his attention got taken away by other gods, by other things. And every time we see Mary, this is incredible, every time we see Mary in the scriptures, where do we see her? At the feet of Jesus. She's turning her attention. Her loved, shaped choosing to be in the presence of Jesus at his feet became her vocation. And her deepest fulfillment. I love what my professor. I was just at seminary in Portland with Heath uh, this past weekend, and he said this during class. And I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna steal this uh, for my sermon." This happens like legit, like all the time, right? But I love what he says. Gary Brashear is a great man of God. He says, "Obedience." Keeping in step with the Spirit. We were talking about Galatians 5.25 where he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's one of my favorite verses. And Gary says, obedience, keeping in step with the Spirit means that we stop doing willful sins and do the things Christ asks us to do. Because that will make us Happy. We do this by the gracious direction and empowerment of the Spirit, he says. As we draw close to God and spend time in his presence, the Spirit transforms our character into conformity with the character of Christ. We often call this keeping the spiritual disciplines, end quote. Number two, what I see about Mary is a quote from David Brenner. God's presence draws us into loving will. Are you aware of the presence of God? This is why we do abide on every third Friday. We're taking a little bit of break on during the summer. But this is one of the hearts behind why Jared and I felt like God was compelling us and leading us to start this idea of a worship and prayer night that's free and we come and we abide in the presence of God because we long for our church community, for this area to know and to be aware of the presence of God because it is the presence of God that draws us to a place where my will becomes I want more of Jesus and less of me. Amen? Are you aware of the presence of God? Number three, What I see in Mary's response is you don't need to accomplish or gain God's love. The difference between the two is when we will something, our focus is fixed on the problem and the changed circumstances. But for Mary, transformation happened to her because she willed something without effort. If you find yourself more ruled by legalism than surrender, then there's a practice that Mary does so well. It's behind, behind these two cosmic, or behind these two responses is a cosmic war. The Bible says, calls it principalities and powers, as Paul says, are among us, the powers of the dark world and the spiritual forces, as he says in Ephesians 6. They represent this wide range of malign influences that could take almost any form and I love what one theologian says them he says about both of them both heavenly and earthly divine and human talking about the cosmic war that is going on spiritual and political invisible and visible they can be found in educational economic political systems that dehumanize or destroy people They are powerful forces behind such things as an unbridled ambition, lust, racism, sexism, and worship of money. These are the demonic powers that seek to keep us enslaved to our work and prevent us from delighting in Jesus. And when we spend time in God's presence, filled with the Holy Spirit, we resist the principalities and powers at work behind the scenes. In other words, what we see from Mary is an unhurried presence. And since Jesus is the Word, according to John 1, we also see scripture meditation. She's in his presence. She's taking his word. Mary not only spends time in the presence of Jesus, but her costly giving and love for Jesus points us to the one who is. And I'll end with this. As the gospel of John repeatedly shows, Jesus knew he was going to die. And here what we see is, and this is something I totally geeked out over. What we see is, Mary probably knew this, but she she purchased burial ointment. This expensive fragrance, this ointment was fit for a king, for a priest, and for a savior. See, when we come to the realization that Jesus is king, priest, and savior, your desires and motivations and your will changes. So, number one, she saw her Jesus. She bought this perfume for a king. This brand of perfume was only meant for a king. She gave a costly gift without reservation because his kingship in our lives presents or gives us freedom from self preservation and consumerism. Amen? And as a priest, she anointed Jesus' feet. Jesus was getting ready to make atonement for his people. And she knew the fragrance was all over the room, meaning, in other words, it was meant to last past this moment and into the next six days. She anointed the anointed one. Mary seemed to know that Jesus was on the way to the cross, to atone for our sins. She also knew he was a savior. Mary seemed to understand her need for a savior. And man, when sin breaks your heart, when grace, is, when grace overwhelms you, every day you see a need for the savior and it's what you become aware of and it's what drives you and motivates you to a place where you're at the feet of Jesus. And you're saying, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what kind of cultural boundaries I need to cross. I just want to be in the presence of my Savior and King and priest. Amen? Mary pours out these spices and it's like a microphone announcing the hour has come. point of this posture as an apprentice of Jesus is that our lives are made to mirror God's redemptive work in the world. Mary's posture mirrored God's redemptive work because she had a transformed heart that willed being in the presence of God. And while religion or legalism virtue signaling, attempts to sideline God's plans, he points back to his redemptive work. And so maybe for you, you've believed the lie that you need to work to get to God's love. Or maybe for you, you've believed the lie that you gotta control something about your circumstance in order to make God do what you're hoping he will do. Or maybe you've believed the lie that because God didn't come through, because he didn't bring healing when I was hoping he'd bring healing, that God is less than who he says he is. And I'm here and I want to remind us today that God's promises and his faithfulness to accomplish his plan is wrapped up in the cross. And then three days later, he raises again so we can trust him. Amen? So don't listen to the voices. A couple questions, a couple next steps for us today. As you're walking out today, one of the things I want us to to maybe think about is, how has legalism or entitlement attempted to sideline your attention off Jesus? What areas are you still fighting for self-preservation? What areas are you still trying to control the situation in? And maybe this week, we're open to God's desires. He desires our availability, our opening to him, our choosing of him. Not our fabricated attempts to will ourselves to him. God wants surrender as the choice of your hearts. And so today, or this week, let's practice an unhurried presence in the presence of Jesus as we meditate on the scriptures day and night. Amen, church? All right. Let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness, your good plan. That you work out the the cross and the resurrection and the ascension is proof that you are a trustworthy, faithful God to your promises. And so I ask, Lord, that as a church, we would have a heart like Mary, rejecting self-preservation, rejecting this idea that I need to justify my actions in order to make you love us even more. But all you desire is our availability. And our willingness to sit at your feet and hear. May God, may we not be a church that misses the Savior sitting right in front of us. We ask that in your name. Amen.